0: We all know this in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces, all all the places we encounter one another, that people don't agree with each other. They, They don't agree with each other, as Madison said, because human reason is fallible, so we reach different conclusions. And when you throw 325 million people into the same sandbox, don't expect them to agree. In fact, I would say rejoice in the disagreement. It's a sign of freedom.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'm really glad I had the chance to talk with Greg Wiener. Greg is professor of political science and provost at Assumption University. He got his M.A. and Ph.D. from Georgetown. His research and teaching lie at the intersection of political theory and the U.S. Constitution, very relevant for our current challenges. He is the author of books on James Madison, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and one called The Political Constitution, The Case Against Judicial Supremacy. Greg's articles appear in The New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Constitutionalist. Before academia, he worked for many years on Capitol Hill in D.C. for Senator Bob Kerry of Nebraska. Greg brings a deep knowledge of political theory to thoughtful commentary on current events. He's well worth your read and your listen here. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Greg Wiener of Assumption University. Hi, Greg. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. My name is Greg Weiner. I'm the provost and academic vice president at Assumption University in Western Massachusetts. Uh, I was born and uh, grew up for the most part in Texas and um, worked in politics for about 20 years before getting into academia, uh, which I've been doing for about 10.
1: I want to ask you about that time in politics. I've read that you worked for Bob Kerry, and that you had your own consulting firm called Content Communications. But how did you first get going in that area?
0: Right out of college, I, went, I did undergrad at the University of Texas at Austin, which is uh, near a small town where I grew up. I was a small town newspaper reporter for about a year. I think always had a little bit of a political bug. So I, on a wing and a prayer, I packed up, moved to D.C. and started knocking on doors. I got a job with Lloyd Benson. If uh, for those who remember him, yep. My second day on the job uh, in his mailroom, he was appointed Treasury Secretary. So I got passed off to his appointed successor, an academic, by the way, uh, who lost a special election, and I was out of work. And uh, Kerry uh, happened to be hiring very fortuitously around the same time, and and it was kind of uh, the journey got started from there.
1: So. Pretty much your first job is Bob Kerry,
0: for the most part. Yeah, I, I did that reporting for a year, which I where I think which is where I think I learned to write. But Kerry was uh, quite an education in in a lot of things, uh, politics, but also thinking through problems and, and leadership and all sorts of things.
1: I always kind of looked up to him as a senator. He seemed like one of the better examples of such. He seemed thoughtful and. Calm. What did you learn working for Bob Kerry?
0: It wasn't just a methodical way that he approached problems, but because he was not of the political world, uh, he could really approach them in new ways, uh, which is uh, actually similar, though not, not not exactly the same as the way his friend Pat Moynihan did. I learned a lot from him about uh, leadership, about the the listening component of leadership. Which I've written about, actually, in the context of prudence between being bold and also knowing when to trim your sails. There was a myth about uh, Kerry, I think, that he would just say whatever came to the top of his mind, which was not true. He, was, uh, he really spoke with a great deal of candor, but but was very thoughtful uh, and very strategic as well.
1: Probably had to learn firsthand there a lot about what the Senate is like from the inside. What was it like?
0: I've often... Joked that the day after you uh, stop working in the Senate, you have to start saying it was different back in my day. Uh, But it it really was in many ways different then. It was vastly more collegial and less combative than it is today. It is unquestionably the case that there was heavy duty combat and a sharp clashing of ideas, but but there was also a deep, genuine respect. Uh, One of the stunning things, uh, the things that that stun people when I tell them today, is that the norm back then was that senators did not criticize each other in public by name. I, I remember, in fact, an occasion where, I, I can't remember the, the specifics, but where Kerry uh, declined an interview because the, the expectation was he disagreed with Senator, whomever it was, on something, and, and the expectation was that he was going to call call this person out, and he wasn't willing to do it. The other thing that was different is that staff were really staff. They were we were there to support and not to publicize ourselves or or seek the spotlight. Today, it's not at all uncommon to see staff criticizing senators by name. That's quite routine, and that that would have been just utterly unheard of when I was working in the Senate.
1: After you you came out of that office, is that when you started content communications? And what did you do there?
0: Yeah, so that that was mainly a writing firm, uh, speech writing, some op-ed writing, that kind of thing. I started with mostly political and, and nonprofit clients, and the sort of fortuitous challenge of that is the difficulty of working for so many all-consuming campaigns at one time. That kind of pushed me toward corporate work that is very interesting work, but it's not as I would say, as inspiring or as meaningful as some other things. So that that pushed me toward the realm of ideas, and I started taking night classes. By the way, one of the things that impelled me in that direction is that it, my last year, maybe year and a half working for Kerry, he sent me around D.C. to speak with creative thinkers, including a lot of, a lot of academics, to get a sense of what, what issues are out there that we're not talking about that we need to be or not thinking about.
1: That sounds like a really interesting
0: way to spend a year. That was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I spoke to a lot of really interesting people. But one of the things that got me thinking about was, I guess, a couple of things. One is the extent to which people who practice politics and people who think about politics tend to be contemptuous of one another. Uh, And I think that's an unhealthy, I mean, in some ways it's an appropriate tension, tension, but in some ways it's an unhealthy one. And the second is how enduring some basic ideas are, even when technical information is changing. So you, you can go back and read the Federalist Papers about the Senate. At least then, I think it has changed some sense. It, it was serving, by and large, the same institutional role that the, the founders felt that it would.
1: What were the night courses you were taking? What was the program?
0: It was a master's in uh, liberal studies. It was called at Georgetown, which was a continuing, basically a continuing education program. And uh, I started there, for, to, to be honest, because I was just a horrendous undergraduate, and I've, I've never looked back at my transcript, and I'm not sure I want to. But I kind of had to claw my way back into the academic world. So I, I started there. But it did give me a grounding and an opening. The, the grounding, I think, was in liberal education conceived more broadly than the deeper and deeper and smaller and smaller subspecialties to which PhD programs are prone. The second is that uh, one of the courses I took was with uh, a professor named George Carey, different Carey, C-A-R-E-Y, who was uh, has since passed away, but was one of the great scholars of his day on the political thought of the American founding and became my mentor in in graduate school and and after. Someone once called him the last of the gentleman scholars, just a a lovely, lovely man, and, and a very inspiring one as well.
1: Could you tell me a little more about George Carey? How would you characterize his perspective on the founding, and how did that influence you?
0: He had a range of expertise. He was a certainly an expert on the federalist uh, he wrote a, a book on the federalist papers it, it is very characteristic of, of george's modesty that uh, he never mentioned this to me and when i was writing my dissertation i was i was wrestling with all these problems in the federalist and one day i'm walking through the georgetown university bookstore and there's a display of books by authors on Campus in this book by him explicating the entire federal system. <laughs> he had never talked about it. I think not. I, you probably did want me to figure things out for myself, but I think he probably also just never occurred to him. That was among his areas of expertise. He was also a conservative in the genuine, what I would call the Burkean sense of the word. Now, by by the time of his death, which was um, about nine years ago now, I think. He had become, I would say he, to put it mildly, did not think the second Bush administration embodied the values of, of the conservatism that he understood. In one of the last interviews he gave for, uh, it was actually sort of a documentary on his work, uh, he said the word had lost, conservative had lost meaning and he, he had just begun to call himself a Burkean.
1: How did his perspective politically connect with yours which had fairly matured a a bit by that time
0: certainly he had political leanings i would say he affected me more in a scholarly way than than in a political way i would say that he gave me a deep and abiding appreciation for the fact that conservatism is about uh it's about what you choose to conserve it's about the animating principles of a uh, regime it's about the authority of of custom it has much more to do with that than with with transient political disputes uh, I, I think he also gave me a much deeper appreciation for the constitutional structure not just the document itself but the 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 deep thought uh, behind it uh, than than I had had before what was your dissertation on It was on the role of time in James Madison's political thoughts. The basic thesis was that Madison, for about a century, maybe more, had been stigmatized by the uh, American progressive as an anti-majoritarian who was uh, sort of out to protect the property to privileged few. And what I tried to argue is that he was a straight-out majoritarian in, in more or less all situations but that he felt the best way to ensure majorities were reasonable was was to harness the power of time and delay to uh, deliberation to diffuse the passions.
1: So is that what then becomes the book Madison's Metronome?
0: That's, right. That's
1: right. right. It does seem a little counter to what sometimes is taught about Madison. It seems like a kind of an important new way of looking at it or somewhat new way, right?
0: Right. Uh, hesitate to review my own work. I, I, I think there had been some correction already going on in the scholarship about Madison's views on majority rule. I'd like to think there was some contribution with at least magnifying, I would, I would hardly say discovering, but this this concept of, of the dichotomy between reason and passion and the, the use of delay to, to sort of allow things to, to mature into season. You went to a postdoc next? I did. I did a, a postdoc at Brown University, which has a wonderful program called the Political Theory Project uh, that a guy named John Tomasi runs. And uh, did a postdoc at Brown for a year during which I brushed up the dissertation for publication and taught a couple of classes and um, a re- really good experience.
1: How did you land at Assumption?
0: The honest answer is I was a political theorist looking for an academic job, and there were not a lot of them. There's a, a good story here with a with a very uh, happy, I wouldn't say ending, I would say very happy continuation, which is that uh, Assumptions political science department teaches politics in a way that very, very few departments do, which is to say it teaches politics from the perspective of enduring ideas rather than just transient or technical. Uh, information. The reason I mention it is that my specialty was the political thought of the American founding. So, if you're looking for a job in that area, you go and you you go to the job banks and you look up political theory. Assumption was interested in the political thought of the American founding, but given the unique way that they that the department teaches taught then and still teaches. Uh, politics, it listed that job as, as uh, a job teaching American government because it, the department understood that ideas were so central. So at first, I didn't see the listing, but I, I sort of was familiar with the, with the, with the reputation. So it, it's worked out very well. But you also
1: are sort of in part of the administration, right? What, what does a
0: provost do? I've been a provost for about a year and a half. And in non-pandemic times, a provost is the chief academic officer. Uh, so all the, part of the title is Vice President for Academic Affairs. You are responsible for the academic program at the at the university.
1: I don't quite know how you juggle all of the writing you do and the, these different aspects of a job as professor and provost. What, where's this work ethic coming from?
0: Oh, uh, well, thank you. Well, I wouldn't overstate the work ethic and neither would my family probably, but... Uh, <laughs>
1: You're just very fasted.
0: (laughs) Well, I I will say I grew up – well, by the way, the speed does come – that's where the year as a uh, small-town newspaper reporter came in, where you you have to write on all sorts of things very quickly. Um, I I did grow up in small-town Texas as the son of the country doctor, the only doctor in the town. So I I certainly saw my – grew up seeing my dad work literally all hours of the night. Every day of the week for for years on end, but I, I wouldn't want to compare my work ethic to his. I, I mean, I would say writing is really cathartic and enjoyable for me. The administrative duties are—it's a, a new challenge. It's a new way to stretch my my brain, and it's also an opportunity to take a stand for something that I think is really under assault in our society generally, but but in education specifically, which is. Uh, the idea of liberal education generally and Catholic liberal education in particular. Yeah. Which was
1: the next book for you after the Madison book?
0: After the Madison book, I wrote a book on uh, Pat Moynihan called American Burke. Why? I had an interest in a couple of things and I, and I do think this grows out of my time working in the Senate where I, where by the way, i, I I met Moynihan once, but I, you know, it's, not, it's not like we were buddies. I have an interest in the intersection between ideas and action, so the, the scholar-statesman. And everybody I have written about, or everything I've written about, really in many ways operates at that, at that intersection. There, there were a couple things that interested me about Moynihan substantively. By the way, he's he just in addition to being a, a, a brilliant and creative thinker, he was uh, such a joyful writer. It's the most enjoyable research I've ever done because you, I've, I've read thousands upon thousands of pages of Moynihan's writings, and, and there, there just wasn't a dull one. And, and by the way, I've read thousands of pages of Madison's writings, and there were dull ones in Madison's. <laughs> uh, Moynihan's are all just uh, treasure. But Moynihan seemed to me to embody a style of American liberalism that had been, and I think now it's fair to say has been lost, which is a liberalism of of limitation. So an understanding that there are both things that government uh, should do and can do well, and an understanding that there are uh, prudential limits to what government can do. and And I think that uh, much of Moynihan's thought operated at the the tension between those ideas. Someone else
1: I interviewed, I can't remember now, told me that his staff had basically Jews and Catholics, and their, the politics between those two different groups of the staff are quite different. And that, that, Is that right? Yeah, I don't
0: I... I, I haven't heard that. And Moynihan, as you probably know, was a groundbreaking theorist of ethnicity. So uh, his first... Uh, Book which he wrote with Nathan Glazer uh, called Beyond the Melting Pot was about the persistence of ethnicity in America, and then he went on to write about the the uh, persistence of ethnicity around the uh, around the globe.
1: But he was kind of a big senator in an ideas sense. Yeah, yeah.
0: he yeah. was. Yeah. I would put Kerry in the same mold. The Senate has, I think, in some ways, uh, M- Moynihan was unique, and I, I think is would be difficult to replicate. But the Senate has a need for some ideas people, some people who are at the risk of the cliche sort of outside the box pushing. Certainly, it was in many ways uh, Kerry's role, um, Moynihan's role as well. But that's not to take away from either of them as a as a legislator. But but uh, yeah, Moynihan is a, hu- a huge figure physically, is six foot five, but but uh, also a huge figure in the in the really in the history of the second half of the twentieth century. You
1: have two other books that I'm aware of. Can you tell me about each of them?
0: Yes. So one is called um, Old Wigs, W-H-I-G-S, Burke, Lincoln, and the Politics of Prudence. And it's, again, returning to the theme of the scholar statesman and the idea of prudence and uh, through the thought of Edmund Burke and Abraham Lincoln, who intrigued me because both if you read their writings, but also joyous Writers, just wonderful things to read. Emphasized moderation in their in prudence in their writings and throughout much of their careers, but but their statecraft in public service was often had to be quite bold and quite uncompromising. So, I, I wanted to use that constructive tension as a way to work out what what prudence demands of us. The other book was called the Political Constitution and. Uh, it was about the idea that the Constitution, uh, I would say generally about the idea that the Constitution is really a political instrument, not a simply a judicial one. Uh, and it dealt specifically with a, a debate between originalists about how assertive the, the court should be in, in uh, enforcing the Constitution and protecting rights.
1: I kind of want to go through that because this is the background that you're bringing to now a lot of writing that is appearing in the New York Times and less highly read organs, that's very much about what's happening to the country right now, but it's grounded in your political theory. It seems like that fits with this interest you have in ideas and action, in scholar statesmen, and in, in bringing thought to what's happening in the moment.
0: Richard Weaver had famously said that ideas have consequences, and and George Will sort of amended that to say that not only do ideas matter, ideas are all that matter. And to illustrate that point, by the way, when I teach our introductory course to political science, I always start the first day with a book from my junior year of college uh, as an undergrad called Communism in Eastern Europe, and that was the name of the book, which I still have, and the name of the class. And it was a seminar taught by a Polish constitutional lawyer. The uh, class was the kind of thing, if you wanted to work in government, this was the kind of information you needed. But I took the class in the fall semester of 89. And you used to be able to ask, do you remember what happened in the fall semester of 89? And uh, now you have to say, have you read in your history books what happened? Because it was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And everything in that book became instantly irrelevant. I do find in looking at our contemporary moment that the enduring ideas illuminate a lot about what's happening and what what can happen going forward. When Trump
1: starts campaigning, what were you thinking about this new political force that was on the scene? I saw an article you wrote in the Huffington Post in 2016 where you sort of warn people to pay attention to legitimate concerns of people that are following him, and not to stigmatize his voters. What are you thinking about the rise of Trump as it's happening?
0: So the honest answer as it's happening in the early stages is that like many other academics and other people, I just didn't take it seriously. I, I sort of took him as a, as a sideshow, and I was among the people right up until the night before Election Day, who was assuring my mother, don't worry about it. But I I do think there is a deep strain that, speaking of ideas, is really determined by the internal logic of progressivism that condescends to people who don't get with the program. and I think that had quite a lot to do with the rise of, of populism on the right. Now, I say populism on the right because the other thing I was thinking as is, is someone who considers myself a conservative with respect to custom and, and norms and constitutionalism is that there is no such thing as conservative populism. The sudden, uh, hostile takeover to which virtually every Republican in public office exceeded, and those who did not exceed were, for the most part, rapidly defeated, was just extraordinary. And one of the things that, that worries me most about it, from a partisan point of view, I sort of feel like a man without a country these days. Moynihan said this, that it, it is important for Democrats to have a credible opposition that makes them think. And I think it is, in a similar way, important that there be an institutional embodiment of conservatism in in America. And, and there is not one right uh, right now.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a, catastrophe for the two-party system right now
0: I think in some ways it is now it's worth keeping in mind that that the you know this was not a blowout election the electoral college tends to exaggerate the extent of a of victory so I would say the threat to the two-party system is that there are not two parties with with coherent sets of ideas the seeds of a idea that I'm toying with, that the the conventional wisdom is that new parties arise when there's a galvanizing issue. So the classic example would be the Republican Party arises out of the intractability of ultimately of slavery. I think they may also rise when out of decay, uh, which is to say that that there are so many institutional incentives, uh, but also in our system for two parties, but also uh, so much restlessness in the American character First of all, I don't think we're heading for a period of democratic dominance, but I, I don't think we tolerate even the dominance of one set of ideas for very long. So I think that that could yield some interesting uh, possibilities.
1: The Republican Party is alive and well, obviously, and strong in the states, and you know, a little ahead in the Senate and close in the House. So it's a vehicle for whoever or whatever faction is going to. Be able to get control of it going forward, and could be Trumpist or it could be something else. It's hard to tell.
0: Well, that that's a dangerous thing. I mean, a party should not just be an instrument that is available to be weaponized for whatever individual or faction wants it. I think, by the way, um, there is some danger of that on the on the Democratic side. I mean, Bernie Sanders, who was found the Democratic Party certainly didn't join it, but in many ways described it in fairly repugnant terms, nearly staged, I wouldn't call it Trumpist, but but nearly staged a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party as well. In political science, there's a concept called Overton's Window, which has to do with the shifting range of ideas that are considered acceptable. Uh, Moynihan actually had a similar idea in his essay, Defining Deviancy Down with respect to social issues. The Democratic Party has jolted, at least at the grassroots level, to the left pretty substantially and pretty pretty quickly. That's a real phenomenon, and that I think is a is a dangerous thing as well.
1: And I've seen some of your writing about Warren and Sanders and AOC that suggests to me that you look at that with a not a supportive eye to the, to some of their views about you know about the party and about. The Constitution and and about how rigid they are in their rightness
0: their confidence in their own moral rectitude is troubling to me in such a way that what I've compared this to is from from Donald Trump's point of view he is so obviously right and so obviously beloved because he lives in a you know in a bubble as presidents do and and so forth and he's exaggerated the bubble that the only possible explanation for him not winning an election is fraud. There is a version of that among progressives, which is that I don't really need to convince people of my ideas. My ideas are so obviously, objectively, scientifically right that only irrational people would disagree with them, and therefore only corruption would explain me not prevailing first of all, I think it's, it's dangerous politics. And second, I just don't care for the moralism. The Reality is, uh, we all know this in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces, all, all the places we encounter one another, that people don't agree with each other. They don't agree with each other, as Madison said, because human reason is fallible. So we reach different conclusions. And when you throw three hundred and twenty five million people into the same sandbox, don't expect them to agree. In fact, I would say rejoice in the disagreement. it's a sign of freedom. Uh, it's a sign that people are thinking uh, but but it also means that that one of the most important political virtues apart from the humility that that goes along with prudence is being willing to accommodate what you want to the public good and to what the way that others see it.
1: How do you see the at least rhetorical attempt by Biden to reach across and talk to the other side, which is viewed pretty skeptically on the left, obviously, and probably pretty skeptically on the right. What do you make of that?
0: Well, Biden, I think, is an, is a Senate institutionalist through and through, which is a, a good thing. I think he realizes that he's not going to get uh, anything done without Senate Republicans. And I think it was very smart, under a, a lot of pressure to the contrary, for him to hold out on publicly pressuring Mitch McConnell, even though I think McConnell was disgracefully declining for several weeks to acknowledge his his victory. So I, I think Biden is a smart tactician uh, politically, but I, I think the most important thing about Biden is that he is normal. He does not have a transformational vision for America. We don't need every president to have a transformational vision for America. Our appetite for transformation is uh, much bigger than it should be, as is our appetite for presidential leadership. And I think the greatest gift uh, Joe Biden could give America for the next four years is just to allow us to breathe.
1: He seems a little like also maybe a little bit of an antidote to the overpersonalization of the presidency that you also talk about.
0: Uh, I hope that he is. That, again, goes back to his sort of normalcy and, and authenticity. It's worth seeing that as a demand-side problem, too. It's not just about politicians. It's about what we expect of politicians. And th- there is, a, I think, a particular danger in cults of personality surrounding presidents, and that is, you know, Trump took that to 11 because he takes everything to 11, but Trump did not originate that. There, there, was a, there was certainly a cult of personality surrounding Obama. There was one surrounding uh, George W. Bush. And you, you can, I'm not sure how much further back I would, um, I would go, but, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact that we are not finding meaningful associations locally and with one another. So we're, we're in a very unhealthy way seeking it out in this anonymous realm of politics.
1: One of the really disturbing developments under Trump has been this attack on media, the fake news media, and I I think you called something the ecosystem of unreality. Talk about what you think might be the, the way to combat the situation that we're in right now.
0: I think there are two angles of approach on it, both of which are important. One is institutional. and uh, Jonathan Rauch of the Brookings Institution has a beautiful and very important book coming out on this uh, called The Constitution of Knowledge. It talks about the ways in which we um, are sort of informal, unwritten constitution by which a a free society decides what is uh, true. Those institutions are, are important, and I think a, a part of intellectual humility is a certain deference to, uh, to expertise and, and saying what, what is forbidden to say now, which is, hey, maybe so-and-so knows more about this than, than I do, and I should do more listening than talking. But the other side of it is the demand-side problem or the, the consumption problem, which is to say if people are unwilling to stop and think – if people are too eager to uh, gravitate toward sources of unreality and, and often just vapid silliness that confirm what they already thought, uh, in short, if they are not liberally educated, then this kind of thing is going to persist. I mean, supply tends to rise to meet demand, and that, that demand has to do fundamentally, I think, with the way that we are uh, – we are or I, maybe I should say are not – educating people today.
1: which really dovetails with your job as academic officer, right?
0: It does. And it, one of the things I like very much about Assumption is its commitment to the idea of Catholic liberal education as a good in itself. That's what liberal education means. It's the liberal meaning free. It's the kind of education that's characteristic of a free person. In classical terms, that would be as opposed to a servile art. A liberal art would be as opposed to a servile art. Servile art is something you do for the sake of doing something else. So, if I'm uh, learning how to, um, you know, f- fix a car so that I can make a living, that's a servile art. If I'm learning how to fix a car for the joy of understanding how a machine works and so forth, that's a form of liberal learning. Society has come to emphasize skills so much particularly measurable skills, empirically measurable skills, so that if you can't put a number on it, it doesn't exist. That things like the humanities are uh, in many ways under assault. You may remember that in 2016, Marco Rubio said, I I think the line was, we need more plumbers and fewer philosophers. Now, I I don't think we need more people running around making a a living as as philosophers, although it wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad thing. What Rubio is missing is that a Plumber who has been exposed to some philosophy is A, a happier plumber in the classical sense of the term, and B, a better plumber, precisely because uh, he or she didn't set out to be a better plumber. He or she set out to learn for the sake of learning. And one of the outcomes of that, precisely because it's not intended to be an outcome, is that you acquire skills of creative and careful thinking. Of, uh, of clear communication, of, of approaching problems from different, different directions, and, and uh, so forth. But, but I think it's, it's very important to note in that context that if what you do is set out to teach those things, uh, that, that's the, the worst conceivable way to do it.
1: I feel this tension right now in my life because my daughter is a freshman in college, And I was just helping her pick second semester courses, or at least being someone to bounce those ideas off. And she's trying to figure out: Do I try to learn broadly? Do I try to pick up some skill that is, you know, much more vocational?
0: I mean, you can do both. So, for for, I'll give you an example: Assumption just started a nursing program. We have a unique nursing program and a very visionary nursing dean. Uh, Nurses who have been educated in the Tradition of Catholic liberal education are going to be better and different nurses than those who have simply been taught the the technical skills of of nursing, as important as those are. What I tell students is this, and I'm actually going to steal a line from a a colleague, B.J. Dodsky, who's who's just wonderful at explaining this. The way he puts it is, you cannot game your life. Right? The the average person uh, changes careers, not jobs, careers uh, several times now, and I've done it myself by the way. So all that technical information, and this goes back to the communism in, in Eastern Europe story, all that technical information may be great for getting your first job. But if it's not matched with a, a real ability to learn and and, and to think, uh, and, and to engage in meaningful intellectual activity, first of all, it's not going to serve you well in your career, and, and vastly more importantly, it's just not going to serve you well in your in your life. I don't think this is just about college, by the way. I, I, I think that's the reason I mentioned the, uh, Rubio's plumber before. But but for those who have the privilege of going to college, you get four years out of your life to, to think about ideas. I blew it, by the way. Uh, and, and I, I didn't do much thinking about anything when I was, when I was in college, or at least not, not that was related to the uh, to the classroom. But that is a joy. That is a joy and a gift and don't squander it. And if, if, if what you're passionate about is studying history, then study history for its own sake. And if what you're passionate about is studying accounting, then study accounting for its own sake. Now, having said that, I have college-age kids, too. College costs a lot of money now, and people are going into a lot of debt. And I understand that one of the things people want to know is, what, 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 what am I going to do or what's my kid going to do when they, when they walk out of here? But interestingly enough, if you ask the people in business uh, who are trying to hire people what they need, what they need are liberally educated people. Mark Cuban, for example, just as Rubio is out there saying we we need to educate plumbers, said, hey, I need liberal arts graduates because they can think. And as I said, I'm not personally Catholic, but I think Catholic is a tradition of Catholic liberal education that has a particular inflection, a particular approach to that. Uh, to intellectual inquiry that deeply enriches that. But but that, that idea of studying things for their own sake is both uh, joyous activity and it happens to lead to better uh, economic outcomes.
1: I mean, I spent uh, more than a decade starting and running a software company, which could be a highly non-intellectual activity. But I think the fact that I had been in it PhD program in government and had a liberal arts education gave me the tools to grow during that time.
0: If I can brag for a minute, my my younger brother was the first uh, engineer at Pinterest and is a wunderkind at, at programming and various other things that I don't understand. But what I do understand of programming and coding and software and so forth, which is very little... I would think the ability to say, here's a very complex problem, what's a totally different way of looking at it? I, I would think that would be a very important skill, as, as much as knowing where to put the ones and zeros.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if I had that, but I do think that the general question of being interested in solving problems is a huge benefit, and having practice at it, and being willing to deal with the time that you aren't successfully solving it and letting that percolate and trying it from different angles is, is very helpful.
0: Well, I, I said before that writing is cathartic for me. One of the reasons I enjoy it so much is it's puzzle solving. It's, it's you, write a book, you sit down and write a book about prudence. Prudence is not an obvious concept, so it's you're, you're sort of untangling what is it? What, what do I think it means?
1: When you're writing these columns for the New York Times or Atlantic or the Constitutionalist, who are you writing to? What's your audience? Who are you thinking about?
0: I'm trying to think for a more public audience, but, uh, but one that is interested in ideas and that, that that is, if not interested, open to being engaged in ideas and open to looking at things in ways that they're not accustomed to. I mean, it, it does tend to vary platform by platform. If you're writing for a newspaper, it's a little bit different than a more academically oriented blog. And, and so forth in terms of what you, you know, what you assume people know or or don't. But but I, I think that's the common denominator: is people who are open to ideas in the sense that they see the their their centrality to civic life.
1: One of the points you made in something I read was about how we shouldn't outsource defense of the Constitution to judges. That struck me as an important point that our president has not. Found it important. Maybe he doesn't even understand the Constitution, but hasn't certainly hasn't found it important to defend it. And that our leaders in Congress also.
0: Yeah, I think Congress is a much guiltier party than than presidents are. By the way, President Obama, I I, I felt from the beginning that one of the great constitutional tests would be would he take the imperial presidency that, that that George W. Bush I felt had expanded so far in foreign policy and take it domestic, and in many ways he did. I think in many ways, Trump's damage has been more to the norms and inf- the, the informal norms of the, of the Constitution than to the, the document itself. Uh, but th- there have been two occasions of cases of conflict between, or potential conflict between Congress and the president that are, illustri- are illustrative here. One is when uh, President Obama changed immigration law unilaterally in ways that, by the way, on policy grounds, I support, but that, that constitutionally, presidents just cannot, in my view, do. And the second had to do with a set of subpoenas, I, I think, in the impeachment trial that, that President Trump was resisting. It, in both cases, in one case, a Republican Congress, and in the other case, a Democratic one, uh, went to the courts to, for enforcement. Now, I think that would stun uh, James Madison, who, who, who would say, uh, you've got ample tools at your disposal to defend your own turf, go do it yourself. And, And the problem is when you rely on the courts, not only are they notoriously unreliable for for achieving the reaching the quote unquote right answer, the more you rely on somebody else to do your homework, the less willing you are to do it yourself. And I think we've seen a very steady atrophy of the willingness of of particularly Congress, but also presidents to defend the Constitution, to which they take an oath also, it's not just judges.
1: There's a tremendous pressure, I think, for good reason, for Congress and the president to do things to ameliorate the difficulties of the populace, right? One of the things you touched on at one point was like the forgiving student loans. And I had an activist on talking to me a while ago about, you know, like all of the benefits that would come by that injection of money into the economy. And there's just any number of examples you could bring up where people could be helped by action by the federal government that isn't happening. How do you think about that from the point of view of, say, a president like Biden who's going to face these pressures to make something happen, but you're calling what Obama did taking us down the imperial presidency in domestic matters? I'm assuming you're referring to all these like executive actions and things like that. How do you govern well if you can't get stuff through when you really want to improve people's lives?
0: The reason you can't get stuff through is that people disagree about what improves people's lives. People are tempted to uh, attribute this to these, you know, corporate forces and uh, dark money and, and this and that. But the fact is student loan debt is an excellent example. By the way, I would say it's not an infusion of money. It's a, it's a transfer of money among people who don't have student loan debt, who have either paid it off, or, or I think much more important, people who never uh, went to school, got, got the chance to go to college at all, look at that and say, why don't you forgive my car loan debt, the, 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 the debt of my car that just got, dis- just got repossessed because I lost my job during the pandemic. I, I think that's much, much likelier uh, to disrupt Biden's ability to, to get certain things done than the constitutional system. What the the constitutional system is designed for is to make sure that there is broad and sustained consensus before significant actions are undertaken. And if, in fact, what we care about is the outcome and not how it happens, and not the process by which it happens, then, first of all, there are some awful consequences that can flow from that. And second, that we just need to all Stop preaching is is both sides now do about our fidelity to the to the Constitution because the core idea of constitutionalism is it's not just what happens it's how it happens. The way that that, that Biden has to deal with that is to persuade people, and he's trying to do that in Georgia right now. By the way, we're trying trying to uh, win those two Senate seats. But but what bothers me, is, and this goes back to the question about about some of the progressive elements in the. Democratic Party is the, the, the sense of entitlement that my views are so obviously right that, if, that that I'm entitled to win without doing the hard work of looking somebody in the eyes who doesn't agree with me, taking them seriously, not condescending to them, and saying, hey, here's why this is a good idea, and I'll meet you halfway on."
1: What do you most worry about with respect to the way our constitutional order is under challenge?
0: I would say two things. One is what I've called outcome-based constitutionalism, uh, which is to say we, we, we our views of the Constitution uh, magically align with what we, we would prefer happen uh, politically. So if you're pro-choice, then you're, you're in favor of – you have an expansive view of rights when it comes to abortion, but, but many of the same people have a much more restrictive view of rights when it comes to guns and, and so on and so forth. So it's a sort of constitutionalism of convenience. I would say institutionally, the thing that worries me most is the decline of Congress and the corresponding rise of the presidency and the constitutional order. Congress serves such an important moderating function, persuasive function. It's where genuine consensus is built. Uh, It's where things uh, are built that endure. It's where deliberation occurs, and it's where representation occurs. That is important to remember that when when we get – Obsessed over how many bills has so-and-so passed or and uh, how many this, this Congress passed fewer bills than the last one Congress's job is deliberation of representation and sometimes that means passing legislation and sometimes it means it means opposing
1: if those are the Significant problems. What moves do you think we can make as a country to get back on a better path?
0: I have a radical belief that to, to my knowledge uh, George Will, who long preceded me in it, wrote a book on it, ag- agrees with, uh, I agree with, and I'm not aware of anybody else who does, and that is term limits uh, for Congress. And the, the reason for that, the reason I think term limits would strengthen Congress is that it would alter the motives for serving in Congress. So that if the reason to serve in Congress is, is to serve actively and to accomplish what one sets out to accomplish, or for that matter, to prevent what one sets out to prevent, then the Madisonian motives for maintaining things like like congressional authority and the separation of powers, I think, have a lot more room to operate than if you are thinking in terms of how do I keep this job for 30 or 40 years.
1: I read his book, Restoration, about that. I didn't find it persuasive, and I'm kind of surprised you do with... You know, being on the Hill, it seems to me like people who show up as members of Congress don't know much yet. And they're at the mercy of their staff and that there's a value to people who've been around and understand the culture and and learn about the Constitution. And
0: there's unquestionably a value to people who have been around. So Moynihan served four terms and it would, would have been a shame to limit him to two. On the other hand, Moynihan's are a rare thing. Bob Kerry served two terms, precisely because he was not obsessed with keeping the job forever, precisely because he didn't define his self-worth according to it. I think he had a lot more freedom of action. Let's just think about the last four years and the, the extent to which congressional Republicans uh, who uh, 5 minutes ago believed in free trade in small government in all sorts of things that they have utterly and instantaneously abandoned I mean, who believed in constitutionalism uh, for example how different would it be if they didn't have to worry if they, if they if they weren't thinking in terms of uh, I got to get behind this guy or otherwise I'm not going to serve forever i i, I think the, the the simple idea of having an end point and by the way from my point of view, it's the end point that's key, the, the existence of the end point. Maybe the term limit should be 12 terms in the House, not not six. But it, the, the simple idea that it doesn't go on forever, uh, I, I think, really disrupts the motives for, for service. Now, if governing is so deeply, profoundly complicated that one can't make basic judgments about it, as members of Congress are, are have to do, without... Um, Relying on a professional class of staffers, and I think there are serious questions to ask about whether government is too complicated. That's not to say it's not; it's a different question from whether it's too big, but that that might raise some uh, some more fundamental questions.
1: It's hard because, you know, I, I admire the good professional politicians, and I want to get rid of the <laughs> bad ones. And it's I can understand the logic in both ways for sure. Is there a question that I failed to ask that? you would like to answer
0: i think it's been a great conversation it's been a lot of fun and i'm I'm sure i will think of one as soon as i as soon as i hang (laughs) up
1: fair enough definitely an honor to talk to you anything you want to say further
0: i want to say thank you for having me it's it's been terrific taking an hour away from academic administration to think about ideas is always a joy Just anybody who's listening, respect people who disagree with you. That's the key to to making this constitutional system work.
1: Thanks, Greg. I'll look forward to reading your future writing.
0: Thank you very much.
1: That was Greg Wiener at Assumption. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.